Hello and welcome to EU History Explained. In this series we try to make sense of today's European Union by looking at its history. In the next two episodes we'll look at the inception and development of a European foreign policy, which is still very much in the making as we speak. Although cooperation in foreign, security and defence policies is a relatively young facet of the EU, the initial attempts at integration in these areas can be traced back to the very origins of European integration. From the outset, as we'll see, proposals for integration in the fields of foreign, security and defence policies have been closely connected with the eternal debate about a European political union. The first, albeit ultimately unsuccessful, attempt at integration in the realm of high politics back in the 1950s is also the most ambitious to date, even going so far as to envisage the creation of a fully-fledged European army. In a context marked by the Soviet expansionist threat and eruption of the Korean War, the question of Germany's rearmament already comes to the forefront of debate in the Western camp. The United States sees German rearmament as an urgent priority, with the country's integration into NATO as a way to achieving this objective. But France is immediately wary of Germany regaining too much autonomy and power too soon after the end of the Second World War, and accordingly in 1950 comes up with an alternative plan named after the French Prime Minister René Plévin. Negotiations among the six founding members of the European Coal and Steel Community eventually lead to the signing of the European Defence Community Treaty in 1952. Applying the same successful logic of the first community, the European Defence Community envisages a supranational structure with an integrated European army placed under the control of a European Ministry of Defence. As a corollary to the European Defence Community, in 1952 the Common Assembly of the European Coal and Steel Community presents a draft European political statute, namely the Constitution for a European Supranational Political Union intended to equip the nascent EDC with a political authority ensuring its democratic control. The process set in motion in 1952 is therefore extremely ambitious as it envisages not only the creation of a European army with a European Defence Ministry, but also the transformation of a sectorial integration project like the European Coal and Steel Community into a much further-reaching European political community, with a clear federalist flavour. The European political community is to have very broad powers and competences, including in the area of foreign policy and defence with an executive council acting as a European government that would be responsible to a directly elected parliament. But this grand political project will have a bitter fate, with neither the European Defence Community nor the European Political Community ever seeing the light of day due to the French Assembly's refusal to ratify the EDC Treaty in 1954. The failure of this defence community will close the door for many years to come on Europe's ambition to speak with a single voice in foreign policy. European integration will therefore continue as a sectorial project, concentrating on the establishment of an economic community, and Europe's territorial security will remain under the responsibility of NATO and the United States. 
1954, Germany will become a member of NATO and Italy and Germany will join the Western European Union, which is a regional military alliance born out of the previous Western Union. Although any direct reference to foreign policy is excluded from the European Economic Community's scope of action, its competences will actually touch upon several issues falling under the domain of external relations, such as external trade policy, development and enlargement thereby making the community a de facto foreign policy actor in the making. During the 1960s, French President Charles de Gaulle's ambition is to make Europe more independent from the United States. This translates into efforts being made to push the six EEC members into adopting greater coordination when establishing their foreign policies. At the same time, the goal wants a Europe made of sovereign countries and opposes any application of supranational logic to foreign policy. With this in mind, he proposes creating a political union of states that would be guided by the heads of state or government and that would have a common foreign and defence policy. The structure would be separate from the European Economic Community and fully based on intergovernmental cooperation. However, this plan is opposed by the other member states, who fear a weakening of the community itself and of NATO, and therefore results in another failure. After these unsuccessful attempts, a key turning point is the 1969 Hague Summit, where the European Economic Community member states' leaders meet to relaunch the European integration process. The meeting happens in a changed international context, marked by the easing of East-West tension, West Germany's policy of rapprochement with the East and de Gaulle's departure from power. This lends to a new impetus in European integration initiatives. Amongst other things, it is decided in The Hague that the six foreign ministers will study the best way of achieving progress in the matter of political unification. The resulting Luxembourg report of 1970 identifies the coordination of member states' foreign policies as the best way to achieve this aim. It is the birth of European political cooperation, which aims to ensure regular consultation among member states on major international issues, coordination of their positions and possibly even common actions. In institutional terms, this means the establishment of biannual meetings for foreign ministers and the creation of a political committee gathering together member states' political directors. The EPC is again strictly intergovernmental. Member states retain full control of their foreign policies, with decisions being taken by consensus. And no role whatsoever is foreseen for community institutions. In 1973, the Copenhagen report states that foreign ministers will meet four times a year and more often should this become necessary and establishes a group of European correspondents to liaise between foreign ministries, for which a secure communication system is established to discuss foreign policy matters. The following year sees the creation of the European Council, an institutionalized meeting of the heads of state or government that will oversee foreign policy cooperation. Over the following years, European political cooperation is tested in a number of international matters. 
the Conference on Security and Cooperation in Europe, where the now nine member states decide to act as a group in negotiations, and the Arab-Israeli conflict, which results in a common declaration on the Palestinians' right to self-determination. However, it soon becomes clear that strict separation between the community and the EPC can't really hold, because issues on the community's table increasingly touch upon crucial matters of international politics. This, coupled with a revamped East-West tension and a series of crises in the late 1970s, leads to a plan by the German and Italian foreign ministers that seeks to end this separation by extending the community's competences in external relations. This plan will not be adopted as such, but negotiations among the now 10 member states will lead to the solemn declaration on the European Union that is made in Stuttgart in 1983, which, although maintaining a distinction between the EPC on the one hand and the community on the other hand, gives community institutions, the Council, Commission and European Parliament a say in European political cooperation. Throughout these first years, the EPC develops as a series of informal practices of cooperation between the member states. And it is only with the Single European Act of 1986 that the EPC is codified in a treaty. In addition to codifying existing practices and the European Council's existence, the Single European Act fully associates the Commission with the EPC. It creates an EPC Secretariat in Brussels, which is the first common body created under this arrangement, and states that the community's external policies and European political cooperation must be consistent. Nevertheless, the EPC remains fully intergovernmental and excluded from the European Court of Justice's review. In the next episode, we'll continue our journey through the history of European foreign policy and we'll learn how this informal cooperation will lead over the following years to today's common foreign and security policy. Thank you for watching and don't forget to check out the next video. This podcast is co-funded by the European Union. The European Commission support for the production of this podcast does not constitute an endorsement of the contents which reflects the views only of the authors and the Commission cannot be held responsible for any use which may be made of the information contained therein.